This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2021, 235 million people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the people affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today, I'm going to discuss the history of girls by Aisha Papatia Mbujak. The history of girls is one of the stories in her collection of short stories, the Trojan War Museum and other stories. Her short fiction has been selected for the O. Henry and Pushkat Prizes. Aisha is a Turkish American and lives in Florida where she's an associate professor in the MFA program at Florida Atlantic University. The History of Girls is the story of a group of young girls in the immediate aftermath of an explosion at their school. It's a story of love, loss, religion, friendship, childhood, and above all, tragedy. And what are humanitarian crises, if not tragedies? The story is told in the first-person plural point of view, but as it, as it progresses, it narrows down to one narrator who survived the explosion. The story was inspired by a gas explosion that killed at least 16 female students injured and injured 27 others and wrecked a dormitory at a girls' school in southern Turkey in 2008. Aisha remembers reading about the explosion in the New York Times. The cause of the explosion was initially undetermined, but as her mother immediately said, of course it was the gas, it was always the gas, and she was right. In an interview, Aisha says she was struck by the sadness of this, the avoidability. And this is the tragedy of man-made disasters. They can be prevented, they can be mitigated, all that suffering can be avoided. The reason I've picked the history of girls for my project is because the reader lives with these girls during the last hours of their lives before their death. They're buried in the rubble, several already dead. In fact, they are ghosts. Some are still alive and others in between life and death waiting to be rescued. At the same time, through the girls' conversation, through their dialogue and the writer's social commentary, the reader is, is made aware of the devastating earthquakes in China, Greece and Istanbul, in Turkey where the story is actually set, the Indonesian tsunami and Hiroshima. And by doing this, the writer uses this catastrophic event as an entry point to tell the reader about large-scale natural disasters. It's very clever, really, because in every earthquake or tsunami, we see buildings collapse, thousands buried in rubble, rescue teams fighting against time to save lives. Because the history of girls lets the reader sit with these girls, the ghosts of the dead girls and those in between waiting to die, the reader can hopefully feel the terror of what millions of people affected by natural disasters go through. I'll come back to all of this later in the discussion, and there are other aspects of the story that the reader writes about, for example, violence against women, which again I'll come back to a little bit later in the story. I'd like to start by reading the first two chapters in the story. While we waited, we were visited by the ghosts of the girls who had already died. Those who are closest to the explosion, in the kitchen sneaking butter and bread when the gas ignited, the ones who died immediately, in a sense without injury, the girls who died explosively. 
The dead girls waited with us amidst the rubble, our heads pillowed on it, our arms and legs canopied by it, some of us punctured by it. The rubble was heavy, of course. The weight of it made us wonder what happened to the softer things. Our sheets and blankets, our letters from home, our Qurans, our class notes, the slips of paper we exchanged throughout the day, expressing our affections and disaffections for each other, for our teachers, for the rituals of our contained life. What about the curtains on our windows, we thought? The stories and poems we read to each other at night, or the ones we kept private, folded in our pockets? What about our pockets, our uniforms, our gym skirts, our head scarves and stockings? The two soft pillows we always complained of. The ones the oldest girls hoarded, sleeping with three or four stacked under their cheeks, even though their heads sank into the two soft centers and their necks ached in the morning. The explosion, it seemed, turned everything to stone except us. We were soft then, softer than we ever were. Have you ever seen a buzzard? They're all feathers and fat, not like skeletons at all but soft like cushions, except for their beaks and claws. From these paragraphs, we learn that there has been an explosion. Some of the girls are already dead, and they died explosively, and the reader can visualize this violent death. And their ghosts are visiting the girls that are still alive, those that are buried under the rubble, covered, it, covered by it, punctured by it. Later, there will be girls in between life and death, the girls buried under the heavy rubble, everything turned into stones, the explosions sounding in their heads. They wonder what happened to the softer things of life, the things they used to do at, at the school. And in that excerpt I just read, you know, they wonder about the stories and poems they used to read to each other at night, the class notes, the slips of paper they exchanged throughout the day, expressing their affections and disaffections for each other, their sheets and blankets. Their letters from home, their Qurans, their class notes. You know, the two soft pillows they always complained to, complained of that the other girls always hoarded. You know, it kind of really shows this moment where all the girls feel, you know, is the rubble, the heaviness of the, the, the rocks, the stones, the cement. The structure has collapsed on them and there's no softness at all in their lives at that moment. We learn that it's a girls' school that has day girls, those who come to school during the day and go home at three o'clock, the ones who have mothers at night, and then the 14-night girls, the ones who are actually in the explosion, the ones who used to have or who have each other at night. You know, at night, you know, the dormitory girls or the night girls, you had the older girls in the room on the right, the, the younger girls in the room on the left, there was no door to close in between. So all night long, they had each other giggle and snow and cry and dream. And sometimes they shouted into the dark, good night, good night, good night. And the, the, the range of the girls is from seven to, to 12 years. So these are really, really young kids. As they are buried under the rubble, they are able to communicate with each other. And they have this dialogue throughout the last moments of, uh, of, of their lives. You know, they call each other. It's like they have their own radio channel, each with a clear signal. And it's through this dialogue that they have that the reader learns about their close friendship and all the things they used to do before the, the explosion. 
and and it's really pretty much what girls you know a group of girls together a group of young girls together everywhere in the world would do you know talking giggling into the night sneaking into the kitchen into bathrooms and and and, and really the stuff of young kids the girls in between can't see the ones that are dead because of the darkness of the night the buildings collapse they can't really see anything they can't see much but they can feel that the dead girls light touches and hear their voices the dead girls the ghosts comfort those that are still alive when they cry they tickle them until they're all laughing the dead girls try to unpin their arms and legs to move the rubble that holds them in place except they can't they realize they still have ordinary strength but they also tell them how pretty they look even in the middle of such a disaster they reassure them help is coming people are waking up and you know as we read we really realize these girls were best friends to each other the dead girls provide them information and this is how they find out about what the cause of the explosion and again i want to just read an excerpt from the story about the cause of the explosion what happened we asked one after another until finally the dead girls told us naturally it was expected they would know things we didn't It was what we had long suspected, the gas. The dormitory was always too hot or too cold, depending on what had gone wrong with the gas. Something was always wrong with the gas, and the teachers would adjust it only to turn the heat to cold or the cold to heat. At night when the teachers went to their homes and the day girls went to their homes and the cooks and the cleaners and the gardener went to their homes and we were left only with the night janitor and his wife and their fat baby we called under our blankets sometimes three to a bed as if our bodies had any heat left to share or we slept on the tiled floor of the hall with our limbs slung out as if we could separate from ourselves and become cooler but why didn't anyone fix the gas surely that did not require an act of god as we read the story we also realize that the girls in between don't want to die They would have lingered even there, stars poking through the rubble, cold ground beneath them, cold air creeping in, but with blood in their hearts and air in their chest, they would have stayed there as long as they could, even with the dead girls telling them, it's not so bad, I didn't feel a thing, I didn't feel a thing, and look, now I can fly. But we still see that the, the girls in between, the girls that are not yet dead, cling on to life, and in fact they are trying to dig themselves out of out of the rubble the searchers do come but what we realize there that as the searchers use their machines they in fact just push the girls farther and farther underground the searchers call their names both the living and the dead of course the searchers don't know the difference they don't know that some of the girls are already dead and some of them are still alive The girls do recognize the voices. They recognize the voices of the teachers, the school nuns, the doctor who used to check on them twice a year. But there were also voices that they rarely heard of people whose names they had never learned. For example, they talk about the baker who made the cookies they liked to buy when they were taken into town, the man who came and collected the garbage, the repairman who, you know, the repairman who fixed the leaks and painted their walls, the old man who delivered the ill-fated gas. the accidental executioner but then there were also the voices of the dead girls 
who had woken, of course, from their beds because they, uh, you know, they come to school during the day, as I said earlier, and they go home at night or in the evenings and the voice of their parents and their brothers and sisters and how, how happy those voices sounded, how excited, how could they help it? Their mothers, of course, lived far away. This is the girls who, you know, the night girls who were in the explosion. Their mothers lived far away. And we see that the girls don't even know if their mothers know what was happening. They, you know, they wonder, is it, you know, maybe they have seen it on the news. Or they woke up in the night and felt something wasn't right. And this happens a lot in life where uh, a loved one dies and, you know, you know, you know, like a mother who feels something in her body or her soul and something is not right. And later on, they learn that, you know, their child or, you know, or sister or, you know, someone has died. And so the girls also wonder if their mothers during the night at the moment when the explosion happened did feel that something wasn't right. You know, during the search, the girls hear pressures, pressures. They hear someone um, until it seems like everyone is saying, you know, pressures, pressures. So the girls initially call back as well, both the dead and the living. But the searchers never seemed to hear their voices. And soon all the girls hear is the sound of shovels and machines. And, and that sound of shovels and machines never came closer or nearer to where the girls were. It kind of felt like what the writer uses is that they, they were like diamonds waiting to be dug out. At the beginning of the podcast, I did mention um, about the earthquakes in other parts of the world. And, you know, as I again, I said earlier, it's through the girls' dialogue that we learn about these earthquakes. One of the girls, Fadime, tells the other girls that she told Allah she was very angry. She told Allah he was evil for killing the Chinese boys and girls who had no brothers and sisters. And she says, you know, the, 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 this was there for her punishment. Allah got angry with her because she got angry with him. The girls reassure her that, no, it, it's, not, it, it's not her fault at all. Um, you know, we see that after the earthquakes in China, the girls wrote letters expressing their sympathies and sent them to the newspapers. After the Indonesian tsunami, they wrote letters too, but they did not know where to send them, so they buried them in the earth next to the potatoes. And after the earthquakes in Greece, they prayed every night. And, they, and when there were earthquakes in Istanbul, they gathered the small sums of money they had saved for buying cookies when they were taken into town and mailed them to the government. So we see that the girls are um, quite aware about, um, or at least have some kind of knowledge about other earthquakes in other parts of the world. And in their own way, they have tried to, to actually help. Now, I do want to take a moment here just to talk a little bit about uh, climate change and, and, and the impact it, it's, it's having um, on the world, or natural disasters um, as we know them today, or as we see them playing out in the global, in the, at the global scale today. What we have seen is increasingly severe weather and rising numbers of natural disasters, which exhibit chronic vulnerabilities. So, for example, in 2019, there were 396 natural disasters reported, and this was really above the annual average of the last 10 years 
where we had about 343 disasters per year. Natural disasters displaced 24.9 million people, the highest recorded figure since 2019, and killed over 11,750 people and caused approximately $150 billion in losses. What we see, of course, you have with, with, with natural disasters, you, you have the damage, the impact that cannot be quantified in money. This is the death, the people destroyed, the trauma of um, the trauma itself, the emotional and psychological trauma on the people affected. And then we have what can be quantified in monetary terms. This is the public infrastructure which is damaged, you know, roads, electricity, water systems, schools, hospitals, and so on. And what happens then, of course, when this public infrastructure is destroyed, it has to be built back. And thereby, you see, they tend to also take development gain backwards. So if schools are destroyed, of course, children don't have access to, to, to schools. If water systems are damaged, people don't have access to clean water, and all of that has to be rebuilt back. We have also seen a recent rise in global hunger and food insecurity, driven by climate change and, and extreme weather events. Again, in 2019, 34 million people suffered from weather-driven acute food insecurity. These numbers are expected to rise because more than 80% of the world's most food insecure people live in disaster-prone countries. We also saw in uh, last year, in 2020, we saw swarms of desert locust, locusts triggered by unusual weather conditions, threatening large areas of pastures and crops in the Horn of Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. Um, in Somalia and Ethiopia, these two countries saw the worst infestation of locusts in the last 25 years, um, in Kenya as well. The other aspect of history of girls that I'd like to talk about is gender-based violence. In the story, violence is described as um, violence against the innocents and against sinners. The girls had been taught history, the history of girls, you know, they were told or taught about Hiroshima, where hundreds of schools girls were clearing homes and roads to make the widest of fire lanes when the bomb came. In China, in India, some girls weren't allowed to live a day. In Russia, Uzbekistan, Georgia, Ukraine, girls were sold once and shipped abroad to be sold again and again. And this is how the girls learned their geography. And here, these countries... The girls looked at it as the history of innocence, but then they also talked, um, learned about the history of sinners. And these are girls who are stoned by their villagers, burned by their brothers, killed by their fathers, cast out by their mothers. Their lessons were full of girls who died, stoned for this and stoned for that. You know, in Afghanistan, Somalia, Florida, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Syria, be good, the girls were told, legs tight, lips tight, eyes open, mouth closed. And there's even, you know, in there, one of the girls themselves was actually sent to school because her brother threatened to kill her for having a boyfriend. But of course, you know, the other girls, um, rather another girl was sent to school because it was her best chance to go to law school. But all of the girls, what we learned was sent to school to be girls, to be protected until they were, they were women. 
Um, they also really, we realize that the girls, you know, when, when they're talking about that, you know, the, the violence um, or the innocents and, and the sinners, they, they kind of say girlhood, they were taught was something that had to be survived. Um, and in there, you know, as I'm reading, I'm thinking, does this mean that once they're no longer girls and become women, they're going to be better protected once they survive, you know, girlhood? When they become women, are they going to be uh, better protected? But that's just a question um, I had or I have when, when I'm reading this story. Through their tales at night, the girls imagined, you know, we can see that the, the violence is there in their minds because through their tales at night, the girls imagined that the Somalian girl turned to stone before the attacker's stones hit her. And as the stones bounced to her feet, flecks of dust rose from her. And when she turned back to flesh, she had only cuts and bruises and aches and pains. They imagined the Egyptian girl shot lasers out of her, turned to ruby eyes and blinded her attackers. They imagined the Syrian girls turned to water, drowned their attackers, turned back to flesh, laid out the drowned bodies, and when the bodies were dry, lit them on fire. And in Afghanistan, the girls rose up to the sun and hid it from the sky until their attackers turned to ice. In many ways, their imagination or their tales and how they are reframing this violence against girls in all of these parts of the world, they are reframing it to see how the girls can actually survive this violence. But they had also always asked each other what it would be like to be stoned. Were the girls pelted like the stray dogs they saw being chased away with rocks by shopkeepers? Was it like snowball fights that they read about in books? Or was it more like being hit with a hammer, close and bloody? Maybe it was the weight of human hatred that knocked girls from their feet. Once they, once they tossed rocks at each other just to see, but of course they missed every time. These tales reenacting re the way this violence is uh, pelted out towards the, these, the girls, that we realize that the girls are keenly aware of the threat of violence. It's always on the girls' minds. And they are also aware that they are at this school to be protected from this violence. Again, I want to take a moment here to talk a little bit about gender-based violence um, that we have really seen um, on, on the increase. And during the COVID pandemic, it's really reached pandemic proportions. Globally, we've, we've seen that 243 million women and girls were abused by an intimate partner last year. But we also know that less than 40% of women who experience violence report it or seek help. So the numbers are really much higher than what's being reported. But what we saw was that as countries implemented lockdown measures to stop the spread of, the, of coronavirus, violence against women, especially domestic violence, intensified um, in some countries, calls to helplines increased fivefold. In other countries, former reports of domestic violence decreased as, as, as survivors found it harder to seek help and access support through the regular reporting channels. But we also saw that school closures, the economic strains we, we continue to see, have you know, left women and girls poorer out of schools and out of jobs and more vulnerable to exploitation, abuse, forced marriage and harassment. In conflict zones, 
adolescent girls are 90% more likely to be out of school and 70% of women in humanitarian settings are more likely to experience gender-based violence. But we also know that survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, primarily women and girls, face social, structural, and security constraints. And this then often leads to negative coping mechanisms, including early and forced marriages. I did want just to take a moment here just to really um, emphasize the scale of gender-based violence that women, particularly in humanitarian settings, face. When I started to read the history of girls, even though the story is about an explosion, violent death, there is a lightness to it and I was hopeful. I believe the, girl, the lives of the girls in between would be saved. Remember when the story started, some girls were already dead, they were ghosts, and some were still alive. Now, this could be the fact that the narrator mentions the explosion, the girls are dead, and mentions those that are still alive. But then quickly the girls start to, to have this ongoing dialogue. They start to reminisce about their friendships at school. But as the story progresses, the tragedy slowly unfolds, paragraph by paragraph, as the reader waits for the girls to be rescued. Now, of course, I did talk about the, the rescue itself when the search starts, when the searchers came. And in there, we, you know, we realized that the machines that are helping to search for the girls just go farther and farther away from where the girls are. But even then, we also start to see that the girls start to wonder about a fairy tale future they hoped for. They wonder, and, it's, and it is when they were really, when, 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 when they're talking about uh, the violence, you know, the violence against the innocents, the violence against the sinners. In there, again, the story then, you know, is sprinkled with some elements of uh, losing hope, but also wondering what it is they had hoped for. And, and what they really say, you know, they had hoped for lives of promise and fulfillment to be released in heaven at the end of the time. What they really wanted was to live just a little longer. What they really wanted was to be together now, you can look at this, or I look at this in two ways. I look at it in terms of the moment. They're under the, the, the rubble. They want to live just a little longer. They want to be together. And they want to be released in heaven at the end of time. I can also, or I also look at it in the broader scale of violence against, against women, against girls, and where the, the girls in this school just want to be protected uh, from all of that. Anyhow, the rescuers take so long, one by one, the girls who are still alive start to die. And in fact, the end comes very quickly. And I'll read the last paragraphs of the story. Sometimes we fell quiet. Sometimes another girl died. She would let out a small sound or a loud one. Death still a surprise even under the circumstances. Hello, the other girls would say, as if she had entered a room they were in. There were so many more of them then. It was hard to explain what it was like. We were together as we were so accompanied to being. We made their present worth living, so as we so often had. But then the rescue took so much longer than we expected. Oh, we are on television, the dead girls said. There are cameras and reporters and even Americans. 
What can you see? We asked, but the dead girls wouldn't say. Are our parents there? We asked, but the dead girls wouldn't say. Are you still there? We called out, and they did not answer. What is the heaviest thing you can imagine? A boulder, a house, an airplane? In all of the world, what is the heaviest thing? Can you even imagine it? Where are you? We asked. How? But they did not answer. How quickly it happened then? One girl, then another, gone. Please, I said, don't leave me. Where are you? I asked. Can't I come too? Please, I said, precious, I said, precious. But they did not answer. I hate you, I said. You are all mean. Take me with you, I yelled. Please take me with you. I don't want to grow up without you, I said. But they did not answer. And though my arms were at my sides and my legs were beneath me, in a way they never should be, and my voice could not be heard and my eyes could not see, I felt twice over that I always would be and I never would be without them. Have you ever seen a girl? She's my story. The story is mainly told in the plural first uh, point of view, but towards the end of the story, it comes down to just one narrator. And this is the narrator that actually survived, the only girl that survived the explosion. What stayed with me when I put this history of girls down is the fact that these girls didn't have to die. It was very avoidable. And neither do the millions that continue to die due to man-made disasters. And I think that's, for me, the, 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 the final point in many ways uh, of, of this tragedy, of this explosion, just the unavoidability of it. I hope you enjoyed listening to me discuss the history of girls. I'd encourage you to read this short story. It's well written, you will enjoy it. And for a few minutes, you'll be transported into these girls' lives and hopefully learn a thing or two. I hope, you know, the story will make you curious. Why do I do this podcast? To raise awareness on humanitarian crisis and their impact on humans through storytelling. To spark interest in the lives of people affected by humanitarian crisis. And to take action to address the drivers and causes of humanitarian crisis. What can you do? As most of the humanitarian practitioners I've interviewed have said, look at your own behaviors and the way you act and spend your money and vote. Find an organization that shares the values that you have and join it. Work with other people towards solving these problems. If there's a story you'd like me to discuss, let me know and I'd be happy to read it and discuss it. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter, at Ruth underscore Mukwana, that is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A, and my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band. <laughs>